Hey church, have you got your Bibles? We're looking at a great passage today as we continue on our Galatians series. We've been learning some great truths, haven't we, from, from Pastor James and RJ. It's been great. So have you got your Bibles there? We're looking at Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. Galatians 3, 1 to 14. It says this, You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain, So again, I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith, we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Looking forward to what RJ is going to bring through that passage today. Again, my name is RJ. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, it's great that you can join us, that you found us, uh, whether it's online or someone invited you. uh, We're really glad that you are here. Uh, I'm going to share the Bible now. I'm just going to share a message uh, from the Bible. We believe it is the Bible is the Word of God. And we believe that preaching is the way that God communicates to us today. So with that, uh, let me begin with a word of prayer so that you don't won't be just hearing me, but you'll be hearing from God himself. Heavenly Father, again, we ask for your spirit and the spirit of God. We ask that you will speak to us, transform us and renew us, encourage us while at the same time convict us so that we will be more and more like Christ. Amen. Uh, Many years ago, I received an email which contains an incredibly good news and bad news. The email was explaining to me in great detail how my great uncle from Spain has passed away that week. But then it says, that's okay, because the good news is I was the closest relative and he left me $5 million in his will. And all I have to do is send them my bank details so they can put the money there. Now, obviously, this is one of those email scams, and I'm sure many of you have received one of these when it was circulating. 
But sadly, a lot of people actually fell for these. Now, maybe you didn't, but I'm sure some of you have been scammed or duped into something else. Maybe you bought a car that looks good on the outside, but inside, really, it keeps breaking down. Maybe you bought a, a fake watch thinking that it was very genuine, but it wasn't. Or maybe you have invested in a pyramid scheme only to find out that it was leading nowhere. Whatever it is, the common question that we ask after falling for one of these is that how can I be so stupid in believing it? Because it's just, that's the thing. You don't know that you're being lied to at the time. And we've said for the last few weeks that the Galatian church has fallen into a false understanding of the gospel. That there is this Jewish group, and we called them the circum circumcision group last week, that has been giving a wrong message. And Paul is confronting the church for being so gullible. But see, the Galatian church, they didn't know that it was wrong. And I believe even the Jewish group didn't know what they were teaching is wrong. Because in the end, the lie is coming from Satan, that it is a spiritual battle after all. The devil doesn't want anyone to believe the true gospel because only the true gospel can save. So it's a matter of life and death. Eternal life is at stake. And so Paul writes this letter to confront them. In chapter 3 that we're going to look at, look at verse 1. He says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? I think it's a very serious way to confront someone. He's basically saying, you stupid bunch, who has hypnotized you, who has drugged you that you cannot make a reasonable decision in life? Last week, we saw that even Peter, the great leader of the early Christian movement, was falling into this trap and acted hypocritically in order to save face. And this led to other people following the wrong gospel. And then back in chapter 1, Paul straight away jumped into this issue saying that I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. So there it is. And see, part of the complication is that the false gospel or the false message is not about, it's not about another God. Right? They're not saying to believe in someone else, or they're not encouraging bad behavior. They're, they're not against Jesus or his teachings. In fact, they're affirming that you need to believe in Jesus and obey him. But the issue is, how do you get into God's kingdom, and how do you stay in God's kingdom? That was the issue. And so the Jewish leaders are saying, first, believe on Jesus Christ. Secondly, obey God's law and then you'll be saved. But Paul is saying, no, 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 no. He says, first, believe in Jesus Christ, and then you will be saved, and as a result, you obey the law. See, it seems like there's a, just a subtle difference, but it makes all the difference in the world. The teachers are saying, believe and obey, and then you'll be saved. Paul says, believe, and you're saved, and then you'll obey. But say, if I test you now, class, which one is right? Right? True or false? Right? Or multiple choice, A or B? And uh, I hope you will say, Paul, Paul is right. That, that's the gospel. That's good. And, and you're right. But say if I ask you, okay, short answer question. How do you stay in God's kingdom and grow in Christian maturity? 
Well, the default answer by most people is, well, I need to keep working harder. I need to keep working harder. See, often when you become a Christian, you realize that, yes, I'm forgiven. I'm accepted by God. However, we tend to look at ourselves and we say, I'm a Christian, I'm forgiven, but I still have all this problem with anger, with lust. I still have, uh, I just, I still have this sinful desire. I'm just as sinful as ever. So I need to work harder in controlling my anger, in controlling my, my, uh, my lust. I need to have a better self-discipline. That's what we often say to ourselves. And from experience, I've seen this often leads to two things. One is failure, that you struggle to change your behavior and your attitude. Or secondly, if you succeed, it often leads to pride. That, yes, I've done it, and everyone should be like me. But see, Paul argues in Galatians that the way you enter the Christian faith is exactly the way you advance in the Christian faith. There's no difference. The way you become a Christian, the way you became a Christian, is the same way you grow as a Christian, which is the gospel. He's saying we never, ever graduate from the gospel. How do you become a Christian? Believe the gospel. How do you grow as a Christian? Keep believing and relying in the gospel of Christ. And so, you know, at the end of Galatians, we will see that Paul paints this gospel-centered life, what it looks like. But here in chapter 3, we're in the hinge point. Paul gives us three reasons. And by the way, I'm not forcing these three reasons because I always have three points. It's just really there's three reasons there on why we rely on the gospel and leave behind relying on obeying the law. He gives us firstly an experiential reason, which is the presence of the Spirit in our life. He gives us a historical lesson, which is the promise to Abraham. And lastly, he gives us a theological reason, which is the substitution of Jesus Christ in our life. So the presence of the Spirit in our life, the promise to Abraham, and the substitution of Jesus Christ. All right, let's begin. In verses 2 to 5, Paul, you will see there, he repeatedly mentions the Spirit. But in those four verses, he asks this rhetorical question, and he's really saying, when did, you, when did the Holy Spirit come into your life? Wasn't it immediately after you believed and not as you obey? Because Paul is arguing, arguing if you have the Holy Spirit from the very beginning of your faith, then why are you all of a sudden living as if you have to earn the Holy Spirit again. Paul's point is that once you become a Christian, you right away receive this Holy Spirit, the power of God. You receive God's presence in your life. The Holy Spirit is there right away in your life and is at work in your life right now. Therefore, says Paul, you don't earn the Holy Spirit. He is there from the very beginning. And look at Paul's argument. Firstly, he's saying, doesn't the Holy Spirit just make you understand the logic of the cross? Look at verse 1, right? The Holy Spirit doesn't just allow you to understand it, but he allows you to experience in the beauty and the glory of the cross. Paul says in verse 1, before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Now remember, the Galatian church, this is a non-Jewish church. And they are in the region of Galatia, which is very, very far from Jerusalem. So when Paul says that you have seen him with your eyes, that Jesus was crucified, 
Paul is not speaking literally because the people, these people, this church were not there during the crucifixion. So what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about, what, he's talking about his preaching and them believing the, the message. If you look at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 17 to 19, and we have it on the screen, Paul says this as well, and it's very similar. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you, here it is, the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why? So that you know him better. And I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the, rich of, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incom incomparably great power for us who believe. Now remember, this letter was written to Christians already. They're Christians. They believe already. But what is Paul saying here? He's saying the Holy Spirit's job is to allow you not just to know about God, but to really know God, right? To really know him personally and relationally. How? By opening your eyes, right? Opening the eyes of your heart. And by doing so, you understand the hope that you have and the power that is inside you, right? See, there's a difference. If you stalk someone in Facebook, yes, you can know a lot about the person. Maybe where they work, their family, if they have kids, because that's all often the photos that you see. But how do you actually get to know someone? Well, unless you meet them and they reveal themselves to you, right? There's a difference about knowing about the person and knowing the person relationally. Another example is when you watch MasterChef. And when the judges will say, oh, this is so good. The flavor is just so robust. And the sauce really complements the meat. And the texture is so smooth. Now, we hear that. We believe them. Because logically, they, they, they explain to us all the adjectives. Like, we, we understand. But you won't really know unless you experience it yourself. Unless you eat it yourself. You don't really know. See? And the Holy Spirit's job is to help you understand what justification means. His job is to make it real in your life. See, you can read your Bible, you can listen to sermons, you can attend Bible studies, but unless the Holy Spirit acts in your life, you will know about God, but you haven't really experienced Him. You understand, but you haven't tasted there's a difference. And so Paul is saying, if you are a Christian, you have this experience already. That you don't just know about God, but you really know him already. And so there are things in your life that just compels you to seek him more. There's a power inside you that gives you hope. The Spirit helps you find joy, peace, patience, self-control, and so on. And see, in verse 5, verse 5, Paul adds that the Spirit works miracles in your lives. Now, that can mean a whole lot of other things, and we, don't, we just don't have time to unpack all these. So, so, but the, the Spirit is at work. That's your evidence. Speaking in tongues, yes. Giving you wisdom to discern God's will, yes. Giving you courage to stand up for what is right, yes, that's the, that's the Spirit in you. Compelling you to leave everything behind and be a missionary, absolutely. All that are the evidence of the Spirit at work in your life. That everything in your life that seems impossible, the Spirit of God works miracles and makes it all possible. Everything that you, you know you can't do 
God can do because of His Spirit in you, right? That even your justification, as we talked about last week, that Jesus' presence in your life, that was only possible because of the Spirit in you. But the Spirit also sanctifies you. It makes you holy like Jesus. And so in verses 3 to 4, Paul is arguing that you cannot, you can't begin with the Holy Spirit, but then continue with the flesh, he's saying. Meaning you can't, you can't say to the Holy Spirit, oh, thanks for getting me in to the kingdom, but I can take it from here. I don't need you. The reason you are growing as a Christian is because of God's grace in your life through the Spirit of God in your life. And once you disregard that grace, once you disregard the God's presence in your life, the Spirit that is at work, you're really relying on yourself, which Paul says is impossible to do. And then Paul says a good example of God's Spirit at work and not through human effort, is Abraham, which leads us to our second point, the promise to Abraham. Now, we won't spend too long here because uh, next week there's a lot more about Abraham, but Paul introduces Abraham because his second argument is that even Abraham, the father of these Jews, the father of this circumcision group, didn't get in the kingdom because of his own effort, but by God's grace through Abraham's faith. And look at verse 6. So also Abraham, so even him, he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That Abraham was considered righteous. And remember from last week that what righteous, righteousness means. It's not just about uh, morality and holiness and so on. It's about being in a right, remember, right relationship with God. That Abraham was considered right with God considered righteous because of God's promise, which Abraham believed. That the minute Abraham believed God, he didn't become righteous, he was counted as righteous. That he didn't work for it, but it was given to him. He was justified. And notice, it doesn't say he believed in God, right? It says that, uh, it says he believed God. Now, again, the subtle difference, this is important because what makes you a Christian is not just a general belief in a God, believing that there's a God somewhere that, that doesn't make you a Christian, but Abraham believed God. It means that God said something to Abraham, and Abraham believed God. And so what was this message? Now, this is why it's good to have your Bibles with you. Turn to Genesis 15 with me. Genesis 15, and it won't be on the screen, but just have a browse through uh, in Genesis 15. And you will see that the context is Abraham is getting old and he remains childless, right? In, in verse 2. And we know his wife Sarah is barren still. So they couldn't get pregnant and yet God promised in verses 5 and 6 that his offspring will be as innumerable as the stars, right? So keep that in mind. Now turn with me. Back to Genesis 12. This is when God first encountered Abraham. Genesis 12. And look at the other promise. This is the first promise that God gave him from verse 2. He says to Abraham, which is then Abram still. He says, I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. God said, you will be a great nation, I will bless you. But see, it was impossible with Abraham because, again, he's, he's, he's barren, they're childless. So Abraham had to believe God, that God can do it, and Abraham did, right? And so, sorry, turn back to Galatians 3. So Galatians 3, verses 7 to 9. So this is what Paul says. He says, understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham, that all nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Now, just connect the dots. Look at Paul's argument. God promised that Abraham will be a great nation. And in a way, we can see that Israel became a great nation. But that wasn't the promise for Israel to be a great nation. Paul is saying that it wasn't just about ethnic Israel. He's claiming that everyone who has faith in God's promise is a descendant of Abraham. And that's how God fulfilled his promise to Abraham. Paul is saying the gospel was preached to Abraham by God, and Abraham believed that gospel. He didn't earn it nor work for it. It was given to him, and he was considered righteous by God. And in the same way, anyone who wants to be blessed along with Abraham just have to believe in God's promise. That's the argument. Now you're wondering, well, what's, what's the significance of this? You know, one of... Uh, Especially in my experience, one of a child's strongest weapon against their parents are the words, you promise, right? And often there's two types of promises, a promise of grace and a promise of law. If I say to my kids, I promise you can play with the iPad when we get home, but only if you behave for the next hour or so. What's that? That's a promise, right? But it's a form of contract. If you obey... I will obey. If you do what I tell you to do, then I will do what I promise to do. I will give you what you deserve. But if I say, hey, I promise you can play with the iPad when we get home, and it ends there, again, that's a promise. But it's a one-sided promise. It's not contingent on anything else. So regardless of my kids' behavior, when we get home, they can say, hey, you promised right? And if I don't live up to my promise, what does that make me? A liar, a bad parent. And see Paul's argument here. He's really saying the reason you have to rely on faith is because God's promise is not contingent on your behavior, on the law. It's not by works. It's not by works or by observing the law. God promised like he did with Abraham and he is faithful. That's what Paul is saying. Now, go back to Genesis 12. Sorry, turn there again. Genesis 12. And again, have a browse around Genesis 12. Look at God's promise once again. Now, let me ask you, is there an obligation for Abraham? All right, class, true or false? Is there an obligation for Abraham? No. It's a one-sided promise. Go to Genesis 15. Again, look at God's promise. Is there an obligation for Abraham? 
No. God promised to Abraham, I will bless you. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars. It's a one-sided promise. Everything is I will, I will, I will, God will. And there's no buts and ifs. God's promise is completely one-sided and not depending on how Abraham will act. In fact, we see Abraham continuously not trusting God and, obeying him, and disobeying him, right? Now, how do you know? How do you know that God is faithful? Because also in Genesis 15, God signed his promise. See, in ancient times, when people make a covenant, when they sign a contract, they don't use paper and pen. They don't have lawyers around. They don't have lawyers involved. What they will do is that they will cut up an animal in half, right? Lay it on the floor, and then they will walk through it. Because when they do that, they're saying, if I break my promise, then you can cut me up and kill me like this animal. That's how they signed the contract. Then do you know what God did in Genesis 15? Look at the end of Genesis 15. He made Abraham, Abraham cut up an animal and says that a fire, God really came down and he walked in between the pieces. He signed the contract all by himself. And there's no other place in the Bible where you will see that God's promise is often a promise of grace than here. God says, I will do this. I will bless you. I will give you my spirit. I will save you. I will work my salvation. And whether or not you listen to me, I will listen to you. Whether or not you're faithful to me, I will be faithful to you. Even if I have to be killed, I will do it for your sake. God's promise of blessing and salvation was unconditional. And we know that God was faithful indeed because it cost him his life. And it cost him his beloved son which is Paul's last point, the substitution of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, again, we don't have time to fully unpack this last argument because there's really so much here. But Paul is basically saying it's impossible. It's impossible to obey the law. And if you try, you'll just be under curse because it's impossible to gain God's blessing by obeying the law. If you try, you'll fail and you'll, you'll receive God's wrath instead. Therefore, it was impossible for man to try to reconcile himself back to God. It was impossible for everyone to receive the blessing of God unless, unless God made a promise, and which he did. And so he comes down to keep his promise and to justify us through grace and faith. And so God did what he needed to do in order to be faithful to his own promise. He lived the life that we cannot live, and he died the death that we should have died. And in verse 13, Paul says this, that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who is hung on a pole. Now, just a couple of things here. Firstly, for context, when a person was executed in the Old Testament for breaking a significant law, it's usually by, by stoning the person to death. But as a sign that it was uh, it was. It was God's rejection against that person. They often put the body hanging up on a tree or on a pole. That's in De Deuteronomy chapter 21. It is to show that this person was not innocent and he is cursed by God and he is receiving God's wrath, right? That it was a just punishment. And Paul is connecting that with the crucifixion. He's saying that Jesus Christ was left hang to hang on a tree because he was rejected by God and he received God's wrath 
that it was a just punishment. But notice, notice that it didn't say that he was cursed. All right? It, didn't, it, it doesn't say he was cursed. It says that he became a curse. Now, what does that mean? The only, the other, the only other place we have something like this is 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 5 in verse 21. Um, let me just read it. It says that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God made him who had no sin, not to be sinless, but to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And here's the significance of this. See, to put a curse on someone means that you lay on them all the misfortune and suffering that you can give, right? It's the opposite of giving someone your blessing. But Jesus Christ, he wasn't just cursed. He didn't just receive all the wrath and the punishment from God. It says that he became a curse, right? To be a curse means that for that moment, Jesus Christ became sin, that God the Father looked at him and he didn't see his son anymore, but he saw the, the epitome of evil, of disobedience and, and deceit. That on the cross, Jesus Christ was treated like Peter, the denier, that he was treated like Judas, the betrayer, or Moses, the coward, or Paul, the murderer. That he didn't just receive the punishment for us, that he became us on the cross. Because, and here's, this is why it's very important to know this. Because if all that Jesus did was to take your punishment, do you know what that means? It means, yes, that you're forgiven. But it also means that you will keep on sinning and then you will need another sacrifice. It means that you will need to stay clean and rely on your good works to keep yourself in the kingdom. Yes, you're forgiven, but it means you now have, you now have to work hard to keep that relationship. But it says that he offered himself once and for all, which means that Jesus was treated as sin, as a curse on the cross. He was treated as if you were there. It means that at the same time, it means that you are now being treated as if you were Jesus Christ himself. That you don't just receive forgiveness, but you receive his righteousness as well. That through faith, you receive his righteousness, as we said last week. That all of his accomplishments and perfection and holiness is now on you as well. John Stott, a great theologian uh, in England, he said this in his book, The Cross of Christ, which is a must read, by the way. He says this, for the essence of sin is man substitu substitu substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices, sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Church, that's the great substitution that happened. That Christ didn't just take our sins, but he became us on the cross. That all the punishment that we deserve was on him. But at the same time, his righteousness, his perfection, his holiness is now on us. That's the gospel. And I don't know if you understand the extent, the extent of this good news. And I certainly don't always understand it because sometimes I look at myself in the mirror and I say to myself, what a loser. And see, I, I see, I, I, I know me. I, I know the flawed me. Nothing to hide, nothing to cover myself. But I know 
that because of the gospel, that is not true anymore. Because Christ looks at me and he says that you are worth dying for. That I am faithful and just and I have kept my promise. And now the Father looks at me and is filled with joy. He looks at you if you are a Christian that you are filled with love and delight for you. Not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done for you. And now Christ lives in you and me through the presence of the Holy Spirit, just as he promised. Church, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for giving us the good news. We thank you that it's not just logical to accept, but it is there's so much more that we, that we get to experience your love, your presence, your holiness in our life. Lord, help us to fully understand. Help, help us to understand more and more what the gospel means in our lives. Help us to not, not to keep relying on ourselves and our good works and trying to clean up our act uh, just so that we, we find ourselves more holy, but help us through your spirit to understand that, that you are doing it all that you have given us your righteousness, your love for us, and so that we can rest. And even if we obey, it's obedience out of, of gratitude, obedience out of, of, of great delight in, 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 in offering back our lives for, for our Savior, Jesus Christ. This we pray as a church. Amen.